Greetings. You have wandered upon Broomstave Witchery, a podcast that explores all things pagan. My name is Sabrin Whitethorn, and I'll be your guide. So grab yourself some tea and come talk a spell with me. One of the benefits of being pagan in the Bible Belt of America is that on Sundays, anywhere you go in the early and late morning is almost devoid of people, because most of the population is sleeping in and then attending church followed by fellowship. I decided to take advantage of this fact on Sunday and took my dog to a local park called Herdmont thinking there wouldn't be very many people there, and there wasn't very many people. That's true. The problem was, everyone else who was there was taking advantage of the lack of people by letting their dogs run off their leashes. Now, a little backstory. My dog has been attacked by three other dogs where I live, and has been chased or jumped at by a fourth, so she's very very anxious, verging on terrified when any dog comes at her with their leash off. She's anxious about even dogs on their leashes, but once she's seen them a few times and has been slowly introduced with sniffing and such, she usually warms up and makes doggy friends. But unleashed dogs, especially her size or larger, coming up to her terrifies her because of these attacks. It doesn't really make me feel good either, considering the last dog attack came with two dogs, and one of them bit me four times while the other went for my dog. Fun times. Now, my dog isn't small. She's a medium-sized dog, about 48 pounds of pure muscle. She's a Basset Hound, German Shepherd, and Pitbull mix. So it's very sad to me when she gets scared because she tucks her tail between her legs and physically tries to hide behind me or behind whatever's nearby. She recently outgrew her harness, so until I get a new one for her, which Sunday's incident has fast-tracked in my mind, I've just gone with her collar and leash. So on Sunday, I'm at Herdmont with her, and the first two people with their dogs unleashed are at least far enough away or heading in another direction that while she was anxious and kept looking over at them, there wasn't really any incident. Until a very nice couple with two very, very nice and well-behaved dogs came and directly passed by on the same trail with both of their very well-behaved dogs off leashes. These were large collie or collie mixes, beautiful dogs, and one of them stayed very near its people. The other one, much to my own anxiety, sauntered right up to Tegan, my dog, and was trying to politely sniff her nose and make friends. Tegan was not okay with this. Her tail had tucked tightly between her legs long before the dog reached her, and she was already backing up behind me and looking for an exit. She popped right out of her collar and booked it to the nearest bridge. The people called their dog over and kept apologizing, and I was very nice about it. There was no point starting anything. They were very nice people, and since Tegan wasn't being chased by their dog, she wasn't running away. I was able to get her and easily slip her collar back on, but she was very stressed and shaking. And this is where I got really irritated. As they're walking away, this very nice couple says, Oh, don't worry, they're super nice. They would never bite. They're not aggressive. 
fellow dog owners, I love most of you. I love most of your dogs. Some of the sweetest people I've met in this city, I've met out and about with their dogs. But please, fellow dog owners, stop using my dog is really nice and never bites and just wants to be friends, so don't worry, as an excuse to have your dog off its leash. The behavior and temperament of your dog really isn't relevant. The problem is the other, unknown dog that your unleashed dog just waltzed up and got in the face of. That's all well and fine that your dog is well-behaved and not aggressive, but how do you know the temperament of the other dog? Do you not care about the well-being of your own dog? Getting up in the face of a dog you know nothing about isn't going to keep your very friendly dog from being bitten. My dog is well-behaved too, but she's also scared shitless of your dog, well-behaved or not, and while Sunday she shrank away and ran off, another day she might view your dog up in her face as aggressive, and she might lash out. If some unknown person waltzed up to me in a park unleashed and got up in my face, I think I'd be on edge too. Even if their partner in the park tells me, oh, don't worry, he's super nice and won't bite you, uh, no, not okay, people. I fear this day, because the moment my dog bites your dog, I fear you'll change from very nice person to lawsuit person. There are leash laws for a reason. My dog is on a leash. Put yours on one, too. If you want to unleash your dog, take them to a dog park, not a public park. If your dog gets bit when it's off its leash, it's not the leashed dog's fault. It's your fault for having your dog off its leash and not in your control. And I have the same complaint for people with their dogs on leashes who see me with my dog and rush over to let them meet. Try asking first. Again, your dog may be okay, but the other person's may be scared or not good with other dogs, and it baffles me that any dog owner wouldn't think about that before letting their dog, leashed or unleashed, run over to a random stranger's dog they don't know the temperament of. How hard is it to ask, hey, is your dog okay to meet my dog? But mainly, please leash your well-behaved, wonderful, beautiful dogs. Please. This had nothing to do with paganism spread the word. In last week's episode, and briefly in Sweepings 2, you heard me touch upon the fact that all witches draw from the same well. When I say this, I'm referring to energy being drawn, and the well I'm referring to is the earth, and all things associated with the earth or available to us here on earth where energy is abundant. So it's important, before we dive into stones and crystals, to discuss this energy what it is, and where it's coming from. In a future episode, as we start discussing how to cast a circle and call the quarters, we'll talk about how to raise or gather that energy. But for today, our focus will be on what it is and where it's coming from. The moment someone tells me magic isn't real, I immediately have images of Vernon Dursley slavering over a pint of ice cream and declaring, justice. Why? Because our conversation is already over, 
and there's no need for me to continue banging antlers with that person. It's time to move on. Again, why? For two reasons. First, there's no arguing with the Vernon Dursleys of the world. No amount of logic nor evidence will ever sway their set minds in whatever they personally believe or think. So why waste my energy? And second, because I win. Saying that magic doesn't exist is on par with saying that grass doesn't exist. Walk outside. See the grass. See it coated in morning dew. See it in every season, where it's alive and green and beautiful, and when it's expired and brown and flattened under the death of winter, ready to be reborn. Stand in that grass. Touch it. Feel the texture of it between your fingertips. Smell it when it's been cut. And tell me it doesn't exist. Energy exists like grass exists. It's a scientific fact. It's also a scientific fact that grass needs energy to live. If we take a look at thermodynamics, the study of the relations between heat, work, temperature, and energy, the very first law of thermodynamics states that energy cannot be created or destroyed. There's a constant and set amount of energy, and it's simply harnessed and used in different ways, transferred from one object to the next. The average human body, when resting, produces around 100 watts of power, and when engaging in short bursts of energy, we can expend over 2,000 watts. The energy in the human body is our life force. It's what keeps our heart pumping, allows us to use our muscles, heats, and cools us. This is chemical energy. Nearly all life on Earth depends on solar energy. People, animals, plants, and microorganisms. The energy of the sun compels the water cycle to move over the Earth's surface. And it's in everything we consume and everything we use. Energy can be found and stored in fossil fuels, which the sun burns to release, in wind power, hydropower, and heat or geothermal energy. The moon creates tides with its gravitational pull, and the moon's pull is constant enough to spin generators. Energy comes from the sun, the moon, the wind, the water, and static electricity, fossil fuels, Soil can be used to generate electrical power in microbial fuel cells, which convert chemical energy into electricity. Energy can be found because of the gravitational potential energy caused by the downward pull of Earth's gravity. And crystals. Crystals are sacred stones. A beautiful, magical gift from Earth, full of energy and in numerous attributes, they come in every shape, size, and color, and have been utilized spiritually, metaphysically, and physically dating back more than 25,000 years. In 1908, archaeologist Joseph Simbati headed a team which unearthed a limestone statue representing the goddess Venus near Willendorf, Austria. This goddess representation was found with Moldavite, a crystal which is formed by the projectile glass of a meteorite impact that occurred about 15 million years ago in Germany. 
It's known to have a high vibration and intense frequency and is known as a stone of transformation. It's often used to raise the vibration of other crystals, and some of the moldavite found with the Venus of Willendorf had been made into amulets, which indicated that the goddess was held in spiritual, ritualistic, and magical regard. So while the Vernon Dursleys of the world want to ridicule neo-pagans and view crystals as the stuff and fluff that just appeared out of nowhere when online communities decide to make it a thing, those crazy tree huggers with their crazy crystals, we laugh back, as this is nothing new. Crystals have been a thing long before neo-paganism was a thing, and here's the kicker, Vernon Dursleys. 25,000 years ago, they were just an accepted part of these people's lives. Ceremonies and rituals were embedded in the lives of humans, not categorized as the neo-pagans and their crazy crystals. It just was. 25,000 years ago, crystals were viewed as a gift from the earth, just as we view them today. Nothing here has changed. And tell me this. Even the Bible recognizes the beauty, value, and energy of crystals, referring to emeralds as signifying strength, steadiness, and durability. And there are 12 gemstones in the Bible's revelations that are considered sacred. Sacred. They represent God. Yet when a pagan refers to the symbology or magical properties of crystals, it's scoffed baffling. My point here, again, is that the use of crystals is not a new concept. It's not a neo-pagan concept. Crystals are scientifically full of energy because they come from earth or are infused with the energy of the earth. They contain piezoelectric and pyroelectric properties, the release of electric charge from mechanical stress and from temperature changes. To argue this is to argue with science, not with paganism. It's true that the use of crystals spiritually really lifted off in the 1980s with neo-paganism, but they stem from ancient concepts and were used ritualistically long before then. Today, we view stones as both energized from the earth and as carrying their own individual compositions, frequencies, symbologies, and uses. We use them as amulets or talismans in meditation, for healing, consecration, purification, focus. The uses of these stones today are almost limitless, and you can find in numerous books dedicated to stones and their magical correspondences. Within paganism, crystals are powerful, meaningful tools that aid in magic, ritual, and life. We can hold them in our hands and feel the energy within, each one different from the next, and to each individual person who feels them differently. Different vibrations for different people. They are beautiful, yes, but they hold so much more. And throughout the history of humankind, stones have been viewed as protection from evil, in some cases cursed themselves, as harnessing the power to assist with astral travel, in some cases as deities themselves, and as symbols of fertility and blessing. 
When pagans talk about the magic and healing of stones, we aren't discounting modern medicine. We aren't discounting technology. We're using crystals as an energy-filled tool to physically, metaphysically, and symbolically enhance our own personal magic or ritual. A person wearing a copper bracelet or copper line compression brace to help them with arthritis seems to be okay, but carrying a piece of fluorite to assist with arthritis is going too far? Really? Crystals can be associated with the chakras, used in divination as rune tokens or pendulums, in spell work, meditation, and as amulets. They can be used in crystal grids, for physical healing rituals, to charge items or tools, and even in ritual baths. They can be used to charge or add strength to essential oils used in spell work and rituals, and even to charge water for drinking. Although you want to be careful with this, as some stones can add chemicals to your water that you do not want to consume. So let's switch gears a bit and discuss how to look for crystals, how to feel the energy from crystals, and how to cleanse or energize them. Let's talk about cleansing and charging first. There are many ways you can cleanse your crystals. Most of them are the same as when we discussed cleansing runes, passing them through the elements, although with this you want to be careful as well. Certain crystals that have a softer makeup, like selenite, can be harmed by water. They can crack, peel, or even dissolve if left in water or exposed to too much water. If I've purchased a crystal in a shop where I know it's potentially been handled by others, I'll typically pass it through some Palo Santo smoke. As previously discussed, sage will displace all energy, while Palo Santo only clears negative energy. I don't want to clear my crystals of all energy. I want to displace only negative energy, personally. Another way you can both cleanse and charge your crystals is to put them out and let the moon work its magic. Other ways to charge your crystals if you feel they need a little pick-me-up is to rest them on or near selenite. Selenite is a self-charging crystal. It works as a battery in a sense and can be used to charge other crystals. You can also simply hold them in your hands and offer them your own energy. With that being said... The crystals themselves carry energy, so it's really less about an energy infusion and more about a boost of what is already there. Now, let's discuss how to find or look for crystals and what to specifically look for. Where or how to find crystals is easy, pretty much anywhere. You can find crystals in pagan, metaphysical, or holistic shops, mineral or rock shops that specialize in crystal, glass, and metal, Whole food markets, online, there are a million places to find crystals. Etsy, eBay, Amazon, and sites dedicated specifically to selling stones. Rock and mineral conventions or shows are a great place to find rare and museum-quality stones, crystals in bulk, and a variety of crystal jewelry. But expect to pay by quality here, as most of these stones have been appraised. You can also visit any Renaissance festival and are sure to find a booth or two set up that houses crystals. Broomies, I've even seen quartz crystals at places like Walmart, Five Below, and Home Goods and Meditation Kits. They are quite common these days. Really, it depends on the type of crystal you're looking for, the quality you're looking for, and your budget. And here's another suggestion. Find them yourself outside. 
Look up crystals online and find photos of them in their raw stone form, pre-polished, and go to your favorite stream and see what you can unearth there. Or find a mineral dig site and attempt to find some precious stones that way. There's a variety of ways to look for the right crystals for your needs. This is all personal. But here are a few suggestions. By color. It can be this simple. If you're doing spell work to bring peace into your life, and you know that blue is a color associated with peace, look for blue stones. Or if you're working with a particular goddess and know a specific color is associated with them, look for that color. Go by the colors of the chakras and their meanings. If you're working with your root chakra and you know the root chakra is red, try looking for red stones. By association or correspondence. If you're looking to improve your meditation, for instance, look up what crystals are good for meditation or relaxation online or in any crystal book. Personal feeling. Visit a shop that sells crystals and hold them in your hand. Touch them with your fingertips or simply hover over them with your hands and feel the energy from them. If they feel good to you or make you feel a certain way, maybe there's a reason for that. Because they're pretty. Don't scoff at people who choose crystals based solely on their appearance. They are beautiful. And if you're attracted to it, there may be another reason. If you want it because it's pretty, there's nothing wrong with that. And trust me, you'll find later that there are other reasons you found it. Or you'll find the associated uses for it later and it will become more useful to you than just being eye candy. Physical or healing properties. Much like looking up what stones are good for meditation, if you're prone to headaches, try researching types of stones that might ease a headache. If you're new to feeling the energy of stones, my first suggestion would be to hold it in the palm of your hand, loosely wrap your fingers around it, and feel the pulse of its energy in your palm. Each crystal will feel differently to you, some holding a subtle hum and others carrying a strong enough vibration that they might actually give you a headache. It's really all about how it feels to you. I have a friend who, when she feels a very subtle energy from a stone, she knows I'll feel it very strongly and vice versa. If it's strong for me, I know she may not feel it at all. And if it's subtle for me, she will get more from it. I've done quite a bit of thinking about how I want to approach incorporating different types of crystals into the podcast. I wanted to stay away from too many episodes where I simply list things off. I know the runes and chakras episode did get pretty list heavy. One thought was to essentially make episode kits. For instance, to choose a topic such as love or patience and discuss crystals, herbs, oils, rituals, spell work, and other concepts that are associated with that particular subject. I would love to hear your thoughts on this and any suggestions you may have about other ways I can incorporate learning the different types of crystals. Before we part ways, I like to give a small shout out to various pagan accounts on Instagram, Facebook, or TikTok that I find educational or entertaining, Etsy or online shops that are pagan-based, websites, books, products, and physical stores that are pagan-written, crafted, owned, and operated. This week, I'd like to shine my pagan spotlight on the book, Love is in the Earth, A Kaleidoscope of Crystals by Melody, 
a scientist who's interested in both the geological and metaphysical properties of crystals. This is one of the best books on crystals that I have in my possession, and I highly recommend it for your pagan literary arsenal. I reference this book often and have found it to be an invaluable addition to my practice. Thanks for joining me today, Broomies. See you next week. Thank you for conjuring up some time to spend with me today. And until next time, Broomies, remember, don't drink and fly. 